everyone welcome to season six of straight talking english i am your host as ever Catherine str8 talk english on twitter straight talking english.co.uk forward slash books if you'd like to buy my books forward slash support the project if you would like to support what i do and hopefully you do every little donation counts you can be a patreon you can send me a one-off donation it's all good a little bit of housekeeping to do first before we blitz into season six so first up i really want to apologize again for how sketchy my schedule has been recently for those of you who haven't looked outside or like check the internet in the last year or so we are in the middle of a pandemic my day job is to provide education and education services for young people who are not in school for a number of reasons maybe they're refugees maybe they're ex-offenders maybe they're having health problems whatever and as a result young people like that are requiring a lot more of my services which means a lot more time which means less time to make awesome internet content however i'm using the fact i'm on the break at the moment to hopefully get a little bit ahead of my schedule which means i should be able to I should keep to a schedule this year new year's resolution actually fit podcasting schedule housekeeping number two there will be a book that goes along with this series the first draft is done it was a bit of a slog to be honest i wasn't actually that interested in uh mr burling and trying to piece together his biography but it got done it's currently with my beautiful editor as soon as that is out i will absolutely tell you third little bit of housekeeping a very very exciting one as we know february is my anniversary month and february 2021 marks the second anniversary of me starting this blimmin podcast last year i interviewed poets and bought you some poetic insight this year it's writers and i have some really really exciting writers coming up for you i have a gentleman who wrote a four volume autobiography in his retirement i cannot wait to share that with you he has lived so much of a life i have a wonderful lady who writes short stories love stories in lockdown lockdown themed love stories i've got fiction writers i've got non-fiction writers i have the lady who writes the captions at museums how cool is this i'm going to ask real practicing writers who aren't me all about the craft of writing and i think it'll give us a wee bit of an insight i'm so excited to share these interviews with you guys it's going to be amazing quick reminder str8 talk english straight talkenglish.co.uk right let's get on this the label of this episode is edwardian britain this is the bit of context which people will drop into their inspector calls exams the edwardian era the priestly priestly is writing about the edwardian era cool what does that actually mean <laughs> we should always define our terms right so queen victoria dies in 1901 and her son edward the seventh comes to the throne just after 1901 he dies in 1910 and between 1910 and 1914 his son george rules so technically edwardians is just 1901 to 1910 but generally we say like that period of 1900 to before the first world war as being our edwardian era that's what we're talking about here this relatively short span of time we all sort of already have an idea about this to be honest it comes across quite a lot 
in the media. My big example is, of course, Downton Abbey. Like, there is something in Downton forever. I went through a phase during my teacher training year, actually, of being obsessed with Downton just because it was so much escapism, right? Think the gorgeous costumes, like the extravagant wealth, the, oh no, I've fallen in love with someone outside my class. Think about, if you've ever seen Room with a View, it's a gorgeous movie, amazing book. This sort of like glowing, late summertime nostalgic age. Think about My Fair Lady. All right, the book it comes from, Pygmalion. We ignore that for now, but think the musical My Fair Lady, where they have to teach the innocent Cockney flower girl to speak proper like what I do. And it's this like obsession with frivolity, but we know the end is coming. And that's this like opinion that we have of the Edwardians. That's this representation. So where did this come from? Because it like no age is going to be that like golden and mysterious. It's seen through these rose tinted glasses. And J.B. Priestley, conveniently enough, wrote a book called The Edwardians. In his twilight years, he fancied himself a bit of a historian. And I found The Edwardians in a charity shop for £2. And honestly, absolutely invaluable. He kind of questioned why this era has got this golden glow to it. And he said, I think there is no simple answer. Many different things combine to create the legend. We must take into account first the influence of King Edward himself, who restored the monarchy to London, who lit up and flung open Buckingham Palace, who shared the tastes of this society as his mother had never done. It was an era when the new wealth of the financiers was added to the old wealth of the great families of landowners. Direct taxation was so low that it could almost be ignored. The cost of living had not yet risen. Masses of domestic servants on whom this society depended were willing to be hired for absurdly small wages and, what is more important, considered it a privilege to serve such grand people than nobility and gentry. So the rich scene is set, but it's transformed into and I quote a publisher, the now fabulous Edwardian age by the autobiographers who look back not only at their own youth, but also at a scene all the more radiant because it's on the side of the huge black pit of war. They are remembering the times before the real wars came, before the fatal telegrams arrived at every house. The Edwardian was never a golden age. But seen across the dark years afterwards, it could easily be mistaken for one. When it whined and dined, laughed and made love, it had not yet caught a glimpse of the terrible stone face this war could wear. All right, he makes a point, actually. The only reason we see it as this faded, golden, glamorous age is because we know the First World War is coming in 1914 and that's going to change everything. Yeah, that is a good point. That is a good point. But let's think about whether this age had any of that glamour on its own not knowing that and the best way to get into that is to look at Edward VII himself he is such a boy he really is he's a good old boy he was nearly 60 before he became king he was sort of in his mum's shadow very protected as like the heir to the throne and he lived this sort of like very like ideally sheltered life but trying to rebel all he could 
out, famed for eating literally everything in front of him, including five meals of 10 or more courses a day, 12 cigars and 20 cigs a day, 48 inch waistline. We are talking almost Henry VIII level of chunkiness and of course it was not just eating the wonders of life that he enjoyed he actually had baths in champagne at one of his favorite parisian cat houses i'm using cat house in the of mice and men sense he absolutely lived life to the fullest he traveled around the empire he visited india making sure the title of emperor of india was kept for himself he visited australia and his favorite part about australia was the horse racing which i do really really love his nickname was bertie and occasionally tum tum because he was so chunky. Alleged he was involved in a paternity suit in the courts, which he was found like not to have fathered this child, which is quite surprising to be honest, because as far as I can tell, he sort of got it on with everyone. We went from having this quite sober impression of the monarchy, you know, the perpetual widow, hiding away from parliament, our grand old queen, to having a guy who was kind of fun. Like, he actually, he did love the good things in life. And if we're saying the Victorian era was all about morals, then the Edwardian era was all about manners. This is where a lot of these weirds, like you must never take your gloves off in public, never remove your hat in front of someone of the lower class, and these are the only appropriate topics of conversation at a dinner party. You know, never talk about money, religion, or sex at the dinner table. This is where all of this comes from. So we're kind of covering up his personal immorality with this excessive obsession with clothes and manners. Weirdly, I was thinking about this actually, uh, there was a recent controversy recent time of recording, is whether we should still sing Land of Hope and Glory at the proms. So the tune itself is not a problem. Do, 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 do. Like, it's just a tune. But the lyrics are somewhat massively patriotic and this is a classic edwardian view of where we're at in the world so just for a moment listen to the words of land of hope and glory and have a think to yourself what are the edwardians saying about themselves
that hopefully you picked up on what I did, right? There is a sense that we are the greatest. We are Britain. We are the largest empire in the world, a quarter of the world's surface, ruling over 400 million people. British men get this sense of destiny through their schooling, and arguably still do. <laughs> I'm thinking of a very specific ex-boyfriend who went to one of the uh, the big name old-fashioned private schools in the UK, which I shall not name, who specifically got told in PSHE, you know, like where you learn citizenship and don't take drugs and stuff like that, that you have a right to be offensive. Your freedom of speech is more important than people's feelings. I can't believe he got told that. I mean, it's a reason he's an ex-boyfriend because he actually believed it as well but that's the vibe that everyone is getting just by being british somehow makes you superior to other nations and you get this sense of fulfillment just like by existing like i am british that's so great i'm naturally better than all of y'all rest of you guys <gasps> Yeah, that, but that, that's where we're coming from. That's where we're coming from. That's how Mr. Berlin can make these statements like half-civilised folks in the Balkans because he knows, as a British man, he is number one, obviously. If you can't tell the slight sarcasm in my voice, believe me, it's still there. So as well as this tremendous sense of entitlement, your average Edwardian could actually have a lot of comforts if they had enough money. Could watch international test cricket if you felt like it. You could have a home in one of the wonderful suburbs, including the one where I went to school as a child. Beckenham in South London is your classic example of a Victorian Edwardian suburb. This hometown, wherever he was from, probably would have been modernised to include City Hall and modern infrastructure. All your homes are going to have standard things like running water. Like a generation ago, it would have been some shocking new thing, but now it's standard. You could easily go for a weekend away to the seaside. And the railway networks are still expanding, so you can have these little luxury times away. Communication is quicker than ever before because we've got telegrams. Literacy and hygiene are taken as standard. We also get this work culture, which still persists if you think about commuter towns in the UK, where you're, if you're a person who works in the city, your family will live out in the suburbs, you will work in the city and go to and fro. There becomes this separation of family life and professional life that isn't really there before. Generally, Victorian era, your family would live in the city with you or you would have a smaller commute, but now we have this almost total separation. Girls, alright, you are still going to get married. Marriage is the expectation, but good, good points. You're not going to have to wear those really, really restrictive Victorian fashion. <laughs> oh God. You could keep your own property when you got married as well if you were lucky enough to be left something cool and keep that. You would have a much higher standard of health 
than your parents. Gone is the era of, you know, your dramatic Victorian deaths, little Nell in the old curiosity shop. Oh, whoa, I have consumption. No, people in general are quite healthier. Women have a greater education about their own bodies. And I will come on to this in a future episode, but you could have a job and still remain respectable. If you have spare money, you can have a lot of fun. You can go to the cinema. Yeah, the British film industry is properly in its infancy, but we have got silent films. You can go to the music hall or variety theatre, which I've always thought, if I could go back in time, they sound like a good laugh, to be honest. So you pay your money, you get your drinks, you mingle, uh, there might be dancing, comedians, singers, impressionists, all kinds of things that you could do. Obviously, there's like higher end or um, lower end ones that are a bit, bit sleazier. And of course, the one in Leicester Square was able to fully transform and have like horse shows or like water fountain shows because why not? But we get a sleek little bit of the gender divide coming in. The music halls did provide a certain liberation for women because women were allowed to perform there. But the kind, the kind of girl who would be on stage is not the sort of girl one would want to associate with. So you wouldn't really want to go if you're a woman. It would be seen as somewhat... Ugh, people would judge you a bit. Not a proper scandal, but like, what is she doing? If you were seen there... Shopping and advertising is big business. If you go into central London, some of the older arcades and the shopping areas around Piccadilly is we're talking Edwardian. We have got proper shopping as we rep recognise it and a lot of advertising. This is also the era of like masses of beauty products for women and this explicit line of if you do this thing, boys will like you. Have this skin cream, boys will like you. And some of these adverts are just like guaranteeing you love if you put this stuff on your face. I am loving it. At this point, as I've mentioned, pretty everyone is literate. Everyone has some level of formal education, legally at least till age 12, if not higher. This comes up again later, don't worry. But just assume for the moment, pretty much everyone has a decent standard of literacy there are cheap novels that you can get everywhere but magazines are the big innovation of, of this era you can get beauty magazines sport magazines you can get like news updates you can get periodicals on every possible interest but also celebrity gossip and of course, who is the biggest celebrity, if not the king? We start to see some of this royal use of the media in a way that we'd recognise it as being now. And yeah, we've got these like, it's so, it's phrased in such a cute way, but it's really not that different from like Heat magazine. I, I honestly, I have to share this with you because it's hilarious. Food stops being essentially so fuel related and we've seen this in the victorian times when we looked at christmas carol food is becoming a lot more performative a lot more extravagant but this is the era of the intense 
food. So, okay, okay, you're a noble person. Maybe you're a little bit hungry. You're going to start your day, your upper class day, with the formal breakfast, which has toast, hot muffins, omelettes, delicate foods and coffee. That could be held between 10 and 12.30. And then a fruit course, including something called sleepy grapes, which I'm not completely sure what that is. And once you've had that first breakfast, your second breakfast is beef and lamb chops, a salad of tomatoes, hard-boiled eggs, eggs on toast, more omelettes, fish, lobster, and French peas, potatoes, mushrooms, chicken, and then jellies, and then more coffee, and then more biscuits, and that's your breakfast. Like, how did anyone manage to do anything? Alright, alright, I'm making it sound great because all these things are great. Like, if you are much as in any era, if you are fortunate to have wealth, then life is just really good for you. But this is not the case. We have a lot of these famous exposés. Charles Booth's Poverty Map of London came out in 1902 in which Charles Booth essentially went round all of London and mapped for the first time the areas where there was extensive deprivation. Of course, my favourite part of this is that the worst category to be in was incurably criminal. And when I first started dating my boyfriend, he lived somewhere that Charles Booth had considered to be incurably criminal. The other person who we want to talk about is Seabomb Roundtree. Roundtree, as in like fruit pastels, found that 20,000 people living in York were in a state of poverty. That's 28% of the population of one of the country's biggest cities did not have enough food, fuel or clothing to exist. This was half of York's working population. London is not an exceptional case, as Booth found. People can't even dismiss it as being like, oh, this is this one city where loads of people are in poverty. It's everywhere. Of those people in York, a third did not have enough money coming in to live a normal life, even if they spent every single penny wisely. You can't be a Victorian and be like, oh, just be thrifty, because there's no money for the very bottom. 1911, though, we have the National Insurance Bill. This is proposed by Prime Minister, Prime Minister David Lloyd George. He has a tremendous moustache, by the way. Epic Welsh legendary moustache owner. And this was the very first, like... Preemie baby of our NI system now. You would have a little bit of health or unemployment insurance in the short term for people who needed it. Such as if, I don't know, you had six weeks unemployed or you had a broken leg that had a very like distinct healing time. That would be available to you. This sounds awesome. There is no way we can look at that now and be like, oh, that's terrible. But it was seen as infringing on the powers of the aristocracy. The money for this was gonna come from increased land taxes. And the major landowners, then as now, are the aristocracy. This 
bill gets stopped in Parliament, started in Parliament, stop, start, stop, start, vetoed, redone, and eventually it does come to fruition. But this starts this process of insecurity. People who for a hundred million years had had your ordinary folk doffing their caps, yes my lord, yes my lady, that cannot be taken for granted anymore. It's still going on, but it's not something that is just assumed to be ever present. So despite all these beautiful things in Ed in Edwardian England, people are starting to get a bit twitchy. We've got this amazing empire, and pretty much all of the British Empire is still in British hands. Edward VII has visited India, he's like reassured everyone, we've still got India, life is good, and everyone starts to get a little bit worried. Britain had won the Boer War of 1899 to 1902, but this had been a massive, massive financial cost. The UK had twice the number of casualties as their enemy, the South African Republic, and it was a really stupid war that wasn't really threatening anyone any way. Like, we do not have the time where Britain can just sweep in with, like, Union Jacks, be like, we're here now, and everyone, like, shuts up. No, like, they have faced a war and only just won it. With this modern media as well, the government are dealing with negative press about their wars. And that is not something they're used to dealing with. Are we secure in the world when our victories come at such higher price? Yet yeah, we've still got this Victorian view of war as the great game. You know, it's all part of a chess match. But we're starting to get superpowers. Russia is coming up. Austro-Hungary is getting big in Central Europe and even though Britain is coming out on top we can't rest easy. Europe is kind of tied together through this family network and like it's one of these well trotted out facts that the three main rulers were cousins when the first world war started yeah we know that but Britain can't stay outside of things forever. We hadn't really been involved in international politics since the Napoleonic Wars. We have got to get involved. Edward VII really does not want war. We'd like to say that's because he's a smart guy who loves peace, but probably means that he can't, like, bathe in champagne in Paris. But he's like, no. 1904, the Entente Cordiale. E-N-T-E-N-T-E cordial with an e on the end agreements are signed between britain and france this is the formal end of like a thousand years of on-off fighting so britain and france are now besties 1907 we have the anglo-russian agreement which means we are not going to go to war with russia brilliant our king's extravagant lifestyle is going to mean there is peace in europe forever we are happy, we are safe, we can go musical, life is good. So on one hand, we are confident, we are secure, this is, we are looking back on this golden age in a fairly accurate way, this is a lot of pomp, a lot of extravagance, a lot of going over the top, a lot of celebrating, but 
we have this slight insecurity creeping in. Will we be able to keep it going in the same way that we did the century before? Is it going to mean that things we take for granted are not available? Are our innate structures of superiority going to last? It's becoming apparent that Britain is very divided, as is Europe. And we can't afford to get too cosy, but a lot of people are getting a bit cosy. And there's one more point that I want to make before I leave you be today, is a lot of people, a lot of students actually, a lot of essays that I read, think about the Edwardian era as this like far off mythical thing, you know, like the Tudors, the Stuarts, and it's all contemporary. And I'm like, this is not a long time ago. This, I worked this out actually, my grandfather was born in 1921. He was the youngest of 11 children because, you know, the Irish. So his older siblings were Edwardians. That means I have great uncle, had great aunts and great uncles who were Edwardian. I'm 33. I'm not that far removed from the Ute of today. My other grandparents were born 10 years after the Edwardian era. Anyone who my parents met, who was an old person to them growing up, is an Edwardian. This is not a faraway distant place. These are people that we could have talked to realistically. Priestley died in the 1980s, a couple of years before I was born. Please, please do not think of this time in British history as being some like far off fantastical fairyland of the Spanish Armada, cause it isn't. These people are us, pretty much. And they are not many years distant from us sitting here in 2021 by the time you hear this. So I'm recording this in 2020. Well, thank you for listening, guys, through my whistle-stop tour through the Edwardian age. Obviously, I've glossed over a lot of things, but hey, we've got time. It's season six. It's the 20th century season. SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.co.uk forward slash books. There will be a book that goes along with this. Forward slash support. Drop me a donation. Thank you ever so much. And I'll be returning next week to talk to you about socialism.